0: Jimmy Carter was the 39th president of the United States. Uh, He once visited the Great Pyramid of Giza as part of an official state visit. And when he was visiting that Great Pyramid, he was told that it had taken 20 years to build. 20 years to build. And, And President Carter replied, I'm surprised that a government organization could do it that quickly. That's what President... Carter said, you know, building anything takes time. Building a pyramid takes time. Building a house takes time. And today we're talking about how God builds His house. Today as we're in 2 Chronicles chapter 2, starting in verse 1. I've been reading through Scripture, reading through our Bible reading plan, preaching through it. Verse 1 says that, Now Solomon purposed to build a temple for the name of the Lord and a royal palace for himself. And Solomon assigned 70,000 men to bear burdens and 80,000 to quarry in the hill country and 3,600 to oversee them. And Solomon sent word to Hiram, the king of Tyre, as you dealt with David my father and sent him cedar to build himself a house to dwell in, "'So deal with me. "'Behold, I am about to build a house "'for the name of the Lord my God, "'and dedicate it to Him "'for the burning of incense, of sweet spices before Him, "'and for the regular arrangement of the showbread, "'and for burnt offerings, morning and evening, "'on the Sabbaths and the new moons, "'and the appointed feasts of the Lord our God, "'as ordained forever for Israel. "'The house that I am to build will be great.' For our God is greater than all gods. Verse 6. But who is able to build him a house? Since heaven, even highest heaven, cannot contain him. Who am I to build a house for him? Except as a place to make offerings before him. So now send me a man skilled to work in gold, silver, bronze and iron, and in purple, crimson, and blue fabrics. Trained also in engraving. To be with the skilled workers who are with me in Judah and Jerusalem, whom David, my father, provided. Send me also cedar, cypress, and algum timber from Lebanon, for I know that your servants know how to cut timber in Lebanon. And my servants will be with your servants to prepare timber for me in abundance, for the house I am to build will be great and wonderful. I will give for your servants the woodsmen who cut timber. 20,000 cores of crushed wheat, 20,000 cores of barley, 20,000 baths of wine, and 20,000 baths of oil. Then Hiram, the king of Tyre, answered in a letter that he sent to Solomon, Because the Lord loves his people, he has made you king over them. Hiram also said, Blessed be the Lord of God of Israel, who made heaven and earth, who has given King David a wise son, who has discretion and understanding, who will build a temple for, for the Lord and a royal palace for himself. Father in heaven, we, we thank you for your word today as we see what you're going to teach us today in, in your word is about how you arrange the details of building your house in Israel, Lord. Today, help us see what, what we can see, Lord. What can we get out of uh, this passage today today Lord, as you speak to us, Lord, in spirit and in truth today, Lord. Uh, we, we do pray, I pray, Lord, that uh, your, your word uh, goes through me today, that you speak through me, that uh, my spirit, Lord, uh, that your spirit works through me, and that these people hear it in Jesus' name. Amen. Today we're talking about the presentation of the building of the temple of God. Now, because of Jesus, there's no longer the need... For a temple to be to be and to exist where we make our sacrifices for sin. Because Jesus was our ultimate sacrifice. So God will not be building himself a new temple, but God does build his church, which is what we're talking about today. The church is the spiritual house of God. And we can see some similarities between the two, which is what we're looking at today. So we see today three Elements in this passage of how God builds his house. Number one, God builds his house with his plans. God builds his house with his plans. Verse one says, Now Solomon purposed to build a temple for the name of the Lord, a royal palace for himself, and he assigned 70,000 men, and then he talks about the other 80,000 and all these things, he gives all these details. And then verse 3 says that he sent word to this king in Tyre, and he says, you've dealt with my father, and you built him a house, but I'm going to ask you to build God a house. It's going to be a bigger project than you had before. And he says, verse 5, the house that I am going to build will be great, for God is greater than all gods. You may remember that if you've been following along, that Solomon's father David Initially had the idea to build this house for God, this temple for God, but God uh, God would not let him because David was a warrior king. He was a man who shed a lot of blood in expanding the kingdom. He was not a ruling king. And so after David had died, God's plan was for Solomon to build the house that David had this vision for. And so he went about accomplishing this vision that had started with his father that had been passed down to his son. So Solomon goes out, and he goes back to the same builders his father used, and he found the workers, and he prepared to build the house of God. Now, as God builds his house today, his church today, I'm not talking about the sanctuary, I'm talking about the people of God, the house of God. As God builds his church today, he also does it with his plans, his plans. He's, he's chosen to build his church in a very specific way. And, and the first step in building God's house, the first step in building his church in any church is for people to hear the gospel. The gospel, the message of Jesus Christ who came to this earth to die for our sins, who took God's wrath on the cross, whoever places their faith in him who turns from their sins has eternal life. That is the gospel. That is the foundation of of the house of God. You don't have a church without the gospel being the foundation. Look at Romans 10, verse 14. How then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in Him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to, he- to preach unless they're sent. As it's written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. The only way for someone to be saved is through the hearing of the word of God, through the gospel. You have to hear it. This is why we send missionaries throughout everywhere in the world to people who've never heard, because they have to hear. They have to hear it. And if someone's not telling them preaching, they're not going to hear. And even if they do hear, they may not turn to them, but they have to hear it. The very foundation building that God God uses for building his house is the gospel to be preached. That's why no matter what we ever do as a church, whatever ministries we have, we do, we can never forget and never uh, remind ourselves always the foundation of the church, and that is the gospel. There are a lot of groups of people in the world, in America, masquerading as churches because there's no gospel foundation. They've either abandoned it or they never had it. It's sad to say, but that is the case. You know, we had another successful vacation Bible school this week, this past week, VBS, what we call it, we had over 150 children, like I said, and it was successful by the world's standards, meaning that we had a lot of children, had a lot of volunteers, we had a lot of food, which is a Baptist requirement, and the kids had a lot of fun. So it was a worldly success. But if we had not shared the gospel, if we had not had uh, uh, discussions or talked about Jesus, lessons about Jesus, then the whole event would have been a colossal failure, It would have just been child care, children activities. I used to be a children's pastor, and I would get sent all different types of VBS curriculums because that was a pretty large church. And so even though we were a Southern Baptist church, we used Lifeway. And when I got there, they were using something else that didn't even talk about Jesus, didn't talk about anything. uh, It was just morals that had nothing to do with the gospel. And so I took us back into using Southern Baptist stuff because it was solid. But one year, I don't remember what year it was, one year, the VBS for Lifeway came through, and I went through it, and I looked through it, and it was really weak on the Jesus part, really weak on the gospel. I don't know what happened, who was in charge that year, maybe they got fired, I don't know. But it was weak, which was unlifeway like and so we went to a different curriculum, because I said, the purpose of this is to teach these children about Jesus, and I went and found another one that had a very good Jesus uh, emphasis. You'd be surprised at how many curriculums exist that have nothing to do with the gospel, teaching how to be uh, servants, teaching morals. Nothing about Jesus. Children across the country are getting up and they're going to vacation Bible schools across the country and they're not hearing about Jesus Christ. What, what are we even doing? What a crime. That's the foundation. That is the gospel foundation. God builds his house with his plans and you know it's God's house if the gospel is the foundation. Secondly, God builds his house with his people. God builds his house with his people. Now, he doesn't need us, but he uses us, and he chooses to use us. Verse 6, Solomon even says, who is even able to build him a house? He realizes the fertility of this thing. Heaven cannot even contain him. Why am I even building him this house, right? Who am I to even do this? except as a place to bring him offerings. But then he says in verse 7 and 8, he says, but we're going to have the best house. We're going to have the best stuff because he is the best God. He's the only God. So we're going to have the best stuff. Now, the people that God are using to build the temple are not all natural Jews. Some were aliens in the area who had take, been taken into the nation of Israel. Many had converted. Even the king of Tyre seems to be a believer. He says that God is the one true God. And just like God used Gentiles, non Jewish people, to build Solomon's temple there, his house, God uses Gentiles, me and you, non Jewish people, to build his church. That's what he's doing. We're God's workers, we're God's servants. And if we were to take the gospel to the world, we have to build his church. That is what we're called to do. Now, we know the world, especially the country we live in now, and depending on what state you live in, <laughs> is not what it used to be. If you have any age on you, if you've lived 40 years or more, you know what I'm talking about. Right? Maybe even 30 years or more. And if we complain... About how, if we just complain about how the world is less Christian than it used to be, you know whose fault it is? Not the non Christians. It's us. It's our fault. They have to hear. Someone's got to tell them where is the gospel influence? It's it's our own fault. We can point our fingers at someone, but I was always told when I was a kid, if you point your finger at someone, there's three fingers pointing right back at you. You ever seen that? See how I'm talking about? Right? I don't know what the thumbs. Uh, pointing out, but the other three are pointing at you. We need to be planting more churches. We need to be reaching more people, all churches, not just us. We're, we're called to reach our community, our nation, our world. How are we doing? How, how is Monk's Corner, South Carolina, doing right now? How is Berkeley County doing? If it's not where we wanted to be, we have to take it on our responsibility. No one else, no other organization, beside the church, is going to preach the gospel to people. You better believe it. It's the church's job to do that. It's God's people's job to do that. Now, the good news is God hasn't fired us. Amen? He hasn't said, no more Gentiles. We're going to use somebody else. He's using us, right? He hasn't enlisted new workers in replace of us. Some years ago, some some cultural thinkers developed the system. They not only really developed it, they just kind of showed what was going on. That there's a system of influence in the world that they called these seven mountains. It's a metaphor, so to speak, okay? And, and these metaphors, these mountains are these institutions by which the world's influenced. Just as water runs down the mountains and waters everything, these mountains, the ideas that come through these mountains filter down into the culture, and they influence. People, and there's seven of them. There, there's the mountains of the institution of the family. The family unit and what we do as families influence the culture. You may not think they do, but they do. The institution of religion. Religion uh, in, uh, influences the c- culture. The, the mountain of education. Education influences the culture. Fourth, uh, the mountain of the media. The media influences the culture. Now we don't just have television and print and radio, we have social media influencing the culture, right? Fifth, the, the, the mountain of entertainment influences our culture. Sixth, the, the mountain of businesses. And finally, seventh, the mountain of government. Family, religion, education, media, entertainment, business, government. We are at all times influenced, for better or worse, by the confluence of these seven mountains. Now recently, there has been a noticeable decline, noticeable decline in Christian influence on all seven of these mountains. You can go to a bookstore and read a book about how to parent a family, how to be a husband, how to be a wife, how to parent children, and it can have zero Christian influence, zero biblical influence in it. There's less Christian influence in matters of the family. How you raise children, how children should act to adults, how husbands and wives should love each other. There's not as much Christian influence now as there used to be on the institution of the family. And God created the family. There should be, right? Secondly, there's there's less Christian influence in the spheres of religion. You would think there would be more, but even the Christian churches are not influencing the culture the way they should be. There's less Christian influence in education, for sure, in our public education and private education. There's less in the media. There's less entertainment. There's very few Christian influences in entertainment that I even know of. Less in business and certainly less And government. And the reality is that on these mountains, not only is there is there less Christian influence, is that society on each of these seven mountains has become increasingly hostile toward Christians. Increasingly. So what do we do? Well, we don't retreat, we don't quit, we don't put our tail between our legs and run home, and we don't attack. We don't bludgeon, we don't try to kill. We do what Jesus has called us to be, salt and light. Salt and light. Let me tell you what. I went to the spiritual grocery store the other day, and they're running low on salt. You are the salt, you are the light in our families. You might be the only salt shaker in your family. You might be the only light switch in your family. But you're called to be salt and light. We must be salt and light in our families. We must be salt and light in our churches. You know what happens if people come into the church, never hear the gospel, never receive Jesus, but they go to a church type place where there's morals and there's values being taught, and but they come in, but they they never are born again. You know what they are? They just become Pharisees. They just become moralists on some cause they get behind. We, we have to have salt and light in our churches. We have to have salt and light in our school boards, in our schools and administration. We need Christian teachers in the public schools, in the private schools. We need Christian principals, administrators on the school board. We need that influence. We, we need salt and light in the media. You know, I remember when I was in college, I was a sports journalist, I wrote for the Gamecock newspaper. I was the only uh, probably uh, Christian, I know I was, on the whole staff, and I did the sports, right? And every now and then I'd get pulled, because we were in a big room together, we'd all edit together and stuff, and I'd get pulled into some conversations, and I would get questions of why you're a Christian, this kind of things. people had no clue. There's not a lot of Christian influence in the media. We must be salt and light and entertainment. We need more Christians influencing entertainment. And I'm not talking about just making Christian movies or Christian music. We need Christian movies and Christian music. But we need salt and light in the actual mainstream areas so the really bad stuff stops filtering now. You know, I get to where I can't even uh, ride in the car with the radio on. It used to be the bad words, they bleep out. They don't even bleep out anymore. I don't even know what I'm listening to half-time, you know? And so... We need salt and light in entertainment. We need Christians in Hollywood. We need Christians in New York being salt and light to those who are making these decisions and allowing these things to filter down. And how desperate are we for true salt and light in our businesses, in our governments, amen? We need Christian statesmen, Christian stateswomen making decisions, making policies, representing the people that voted them in, but not acquiescing to them. Doing what God's called them to do. Amen? That's what our prayer needs to be. When we look at it this way, we see that the Christians are aliens. We're foreigners in our culture. When we look at it this way, and we're not dissimilar to Abraham. Look at Hebrews 11. By faith, Abraham obeyed and he was called to go. Abraham, by the way, had a great life. He was worshiping the stars. He, he was doing good. He had his own false religion. He was lost as the day is long. God called him and said, "Go somewhere else." And said so he obeyed. He was called to go out to a place that he was to receive an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise. And as in a foreign land, living in tents. He wasn't living in tents before. Now he was. Living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. He was looking forward to the city of God. One day there will be a celestial city where we live forever. But today, we are called to have that city of God here. We are called to influence here God builds his house through his people who are very much aliens and strangers in the world by which we live. And finally, number three, God builds his house with his leaders. With his leaders. I'm talking about church leaders, government leaders, business leaders, everywhere. God has put people in those positions. And we'll talk about that in a second. Look at verse 11. Hiram, the king of Tyre, answered in a letter that he sent to Solomon, because the Lord loves his people, he has made you king over them. Isn't that a great thing for Solomon to hear? Hiram also said, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, who made heaven and earth, who has given King David a wise son, who has discretion and understanding, who will build a temple for the Lord and a royal palace for himself. God chose Solomon to build his house, and it says here that he chose uh, Solomon, God chose so- Solomon because God... Loves his people. God's grace to his people is to give them good leaders. When there's good leaders, it's God's grace. In government, in everywhere, in churches, everywhere. What what is a good leader? Well, you know, we have, for the church, you know, we have these deacon nominations. and, And if you go to 1 Timothy and Titus, 1 Timothy 3 and Titus, you'll see the qualifications for pastors and deacons. And they are all Character-based. It's not about who has the best personality. It's not about who looks the best. We know that. It's not about who the coolest person is. It's not about the person who can get things done. It's not about the person who's the best, the biggest producer. They're all character traits. Except for one. The only difference between the calling between pastor and deacon is that a pastor has to be able to teach and preach the Word of God. Deacons don't have to be because they're servants. But the qualifications Have nothing to do with ability and all have to do with character. Being made into the image of Christ, right? You want leaders, let me tell you something, you want leaders who remind you on some level of Jesus. We're not Jesus, we're not perfect, but if they scream not like Jesus, there's a problem. All right, look at 2 Samuel 23. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass sprout from the earth. Think about the best boss you ever had. Wasn't it fun to go to work? Didn't you enjoy it? Now think about a bad boss you had. You didn't want to go, right? Maybe you never had either one, I don't know, right? But he's saying this, that when there's good leadership, it's like rain, it blesses, it's like the sun shining on a cloudless morning. It's God's grace, it's God's goodness. But the inverse is also true. When there are men and women leading the church who are not called by God, and many, in my opinion, I don't believe are. Churches across the world, it's God's judgment upon those people. Did you know that? John Calvin, the reformer from the 1500s, regardless of what you think about a lot of his theology, he wrote this, he says this, he's talking about government now. He says, we're not only subject to the authority of princes who perform their office toward us uprightly and faithfully as they ought, but also to the authority of all who by whatever means have got control of affairs even though they, not, they perform not a wit of the prince's office. For despite the Lord's testimony that the magistrate's office is the highest gift to preserve the safety of men, he still declares at the same time that whoever they may be, they have their authority solely from him. He's saying whatever prince right now is in government, he says God gave him that. Indeed he says that they who rule unjustly and who rule incompetently have been raised up by God to punish the wickedness of the people. And that all equally have been endowed with that holy majesty with which he has invested power. He goes on and on and talks about it. Look at Hosea 13:11. This underscores what he's saying. I gave you a king in my anger and I took him away in my wrath bad leaders don't just corrupt people although they do God judges people by giving them bad leaders what do you think about that look at Isaiah 3 verse 4 through 5 and I will make boys their princes and infants shall rule over them you do not want a four year old ruling over you trust me I, I, I deal with that every day and the people will oppress one another. Every one his fellow and every one his neighbor. The youth will be insolent to the elder and the despised to the honorable. He says when you have youth culture being insolent to the elder culture, that is God's cursing of a people. I mean, we're there, people. Deuteronomy twenty-eight, twenty-nine. 29. And you shall grope at noonday as the blind grope in darkness, and you shall not prosper in your ways, and you shall be only oppressed and robbed continually, and there shall be no one to help you. This is what he's saying will happen to Israel when they turn from their Lord. See, when we complain, we can complain all day about bad leaders, but maybe instead of pointing blame at the leaders, we should think about what have we done to bring these leaders on ourselves? Good leaders are God's blessing on his people. Bad leaders are God's judgment on his people. This is hard for me to preach. I'm the pastor. I'm like thinking, am I I a blessing or judgment? I don't know, right? You wonder sometimes. You 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 pray through and you think. This is true in countries. This is true in churches. It's true in denominations. Every time I hear of a a well-known pastor in our own denomination, our convention. Of some large church who does some horrible thing. I get nervous that God's judging our association of churches. It makes me nervous. These things should be warning shots for all of us. And you need to be continually praying for all of the leaders in your life. Paul tells us this in Romans 13. Pray for, pray, you got to be praying. You need to be praying for the president. You need to be praying for the governor the Supreme Court justices, your senators, your house representatives, state, nation, no matter if you like them or not, especially if you don't like them, you need to pray for them. Because they're making the decisions. And we don't know if they have any salt and light in their life. You need to pray that people will become salt and light into their lives. God says, we don't get to blame the leaders, is what he says in his word. He tells the Israelites, when you get bad leaders, it's your fault. That's what he tells them. We pray for the leaders and then we turn from the sin in our own lives. Now, when it comes to God's judgment, it's not to, this purpose is not to destroy. Its purpose is to produce repentance so that God's people may get in line. When I discipline my four-year-old, I'm not trying to destroy him. I'm trying to get him to get in line and act like a normal person. Right? Function as a person in society. That's the goal. And I give him a lot of grace and probably too much. God's discipline is a sign that he has not given up on his people. Amen. He hasn't given up. So, in some way, when there's bad leaders, we like, hey, the Lord's still with us. Praise God. God builds his house with his leaders, the good ones and the bad ones, and which ones we have should tell us where we are. An elderly master carpenter was ready to retire. He had built a lot of houses in his life. He told his employer, his lead contractor, that he was going to leave the house-building business, and he was ready to live just a retired life with his wife and his grandkids and enjoy his extended family. He said he would miss getting paid, but he needed to retire And the contractor was so sorry to see this great master carpenter retire. He said, before you leave, can you just do me a personal favor for all the years that I've paid you? And could could you just build one more house? One more house. So the carpenter said, okay, I'll do it. So he starts building that house. He starts resenting the fact that he's doing this. And he starts getting lazy. and starts getting tired. And he starts... His workmanship isn't as good as it used to be. He goes and buys cheap, inferior materials, and he just kind of coasts his way out and kind of haphazardly throws this house together. So his contractor comes by and looks at the finished product, and inspects the house, and he is done inspecting the house, turns to the carpenter, reaches into his pocket, pulls out a key and says, this is your house, my gift to you. Now think about that for a second. The church is God's house. And who's building it? Me and you. Are we doing shoddy workmanship? Are we just getting tired? Are we just coasting out? Because let me tell you, not only is it God's house, we're the ones living in it. We're living in it. So, as we close today, know that God builds his house. He uses his plans. He uses his people. And that's people who are us. And when we don't do what God's called us to do, we're really hurting ourselves. Be careful, we're not just going through the motions. God isn't finished with us, but every now and then he gives us warnings. And some days it's good. Some days it's bad. And some leaders are good. Some leaders are bad. And we need to take inspection in our own lives and see where we are. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for who you are, Lord. Lord, you have given us, literally, your Bible says, the keys to the kingdom. And it's up to us as we build your house, Lord. And you, you give us, the, it's your Holy Spirit, Lord, and you're working through us, and, and you give us the empowerment But we have to be obedient. And are we getting the best materials? Are we being like Solomon and we're doing all we can to build your house because you deserve it and we're living in it? Are we like that carpenter that's just wanting to go retire at the beach, just wants to rest, and mails it in the last little bit of his life? Lord, show us where we are. Lord, I pray that you will continue to rise up, Christians, believers, in all spheres of our society, to be salt and light. You've called each person in here with a specific calling. And Lord, each person in here can only reach the people you've called them to whether it's family, whether it's co-worker, whoever they come into contact with, Lord. Or if there's one here today that's never placed their faith in you, never turned to you from their sins, say, Lord, I want you to come into my life today. I, 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 I want you to save me, that you would save them, that they'd be, be born again, Lord. They'd be a new creation in you. Lord, we thank you for how you've blessed. Lord, I personally thank you for how you've blessed our church here at First Baptist. I thank you for the people that are in here today. As we leave here, let's never forget the the, the solemn command that you've given us to go and make disciples. Lord, we love you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.